Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. If you're new here, we've been walking our way through the book of Mark. And uh, it, it's just, uh, we're jumping back in. We took a few weeks off here. And last week, actually, we, we looked at a section where, where this uh, Jesus engaged a lawyer and he brings out the great commandment. And we want to begin but with in verse 35, chapter 12, Mark 12, 35. And I'll put that on the, it's on the screen. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the, Holy, in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I am put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now that question actually comes from Psalm 110. And according to Luke, we're not going to go there, but as this engagement takes place, no one dared answer the question. Again, there's these religious leaders that are around him listening at this point. But this is the point where Jesus, he goes on the offensive and he goes after their wicked hearts. But why did Jesus ask this question that how can the Messiah be David's Lord and still be a son? Well, the answer is found in the mystery of his, of his personhood. See, Christ is fully human because he descended from David according to the flesh, but he is the Lord, he's God because of the Holy Spirit. And this is an affirmation that the Messiah has come and that he was man and God. But one of those issues to it that's bumping up into those leaders is they recognize if this really was the Messiah, then this Jesus has authority. And that's something they don't want to give him. They don't want to acknowledge that he has authority because there's enough people following him, hanging on every word that he's preaching, and they don't like it. But the question I think in application for us is, what about us? And the authority of Jesus as well. In a couple months, maybe you're already planning your Christmas buying already. But think of, as we focus on Christmas here, two, three months, we're going to worship a little child being born, God becoming man. But is that just a child that we worship or a good guy? See, do we recognize that even... Christ coming to this world, he has authority. And that's woven through all of Mark. Even the wind and the seas obey him. But these religious leaders, you understand, they bristled at the idea of actually submitting their lives to Christ. And last week, the engagement with the lawyer, remember Jesus said this, he, you know what, you're really close to the kingdom. But this, they're not quite there yet. And if you were to dig a little bit in that and you ask the question, why wasn't he there? It's really this. This lawyer had never bowed his heart, his knee, before Christ. He would not give Christ authority in his life. It was keeping him from the kingdom of God. See, this issue of authority is a big deal. Matter of fact, in Philippians, Paul writes that creation is moving toward a day, a final day, 
where the answer is Jesus Lord, it's going to be answered. Matter of fact, let me put up Philippians 2, 9 through 11 on the screen. Look at how it reads. God's going to bring history to an end. And it says this, God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, this event giving Jesus honor and authority, and it comes from the Father. It's for us, but it's for these Pharisees and the leaders and the scribes that are following along. And you catch this, they can't stomach this idea that he has it. But isn't that the same maybe for some of us even here today? See, the question is, in any sense, does Jesus, is he the one that motivates us? coming to church today was it just church or was it because of Jesus is it Jesus that motivates you to serve is it Jesus that motivates you to act a certain way is it Jesus that motivates you to even run from sin folks this is about Jesus matter of fact came across this in uh, some writing. The guy talked about the issue of Jesus' lordship. And just a number of, let's just listen, I don't have them on the screen, but a number of, of very pointed statements that really point to the lordship of Christ. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, be subject to your husbands as unto the Lord. Now, th- these days it's not politically correct. But Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, we're supposed to sacrifice serving and to love our wives because Christ served and loved us. Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. There's a reason. Stop stealing for Lord's sake. Ephesians 4.28, Masters, be kind to your employees for the Lord's sake. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 is where that text comes from, piece comes from. Folks, his lordship. For we, when we bow our knees to him, the kingdom of God gets released in our lives. Matter of fact, look what Paul writes in, this, in Colossians chapter 3. Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus and to the glory of God the Father. Is our motive Jesus? And when that happens, the kingdom grows, discipleship grows. Let's keep going. Look at verse 38 here. And his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. <clears throat> now the issue of lordship means that Christ is the one who comes first. He's the one that deserves honor. But you see the opposite in this snapshot here. These men had no intention of lifting Christ up. They wanted to tear him down. And in his place, in Christ's place, what they did is they lifted themselves up. They became an authority unto themselves. And Jesus knows this, obviously. And folks, here he's going after them publicly. 
They're, they're listening. They're around him. The people knows, the disciples knows they're here, but Jesus is on the offensive. He wanted them to hear these words, so he's slamming them. And knowing that, I think they're growling. <laughs> they're upset. But, but one piece here, I think when you think of the attitude of Jesus here, I, I think at times when we look at Jesus, we want a gentle Jesus, don't we? We, we want a Jesus like Mr. Rogers, who's gentle and nice, treats everyone nice. Folks, that's not Jesus here. He goes after these guys, he speaks the truth, and it hurts See, the exposure of, of hearts, when Jesus exposes the hearts of people, matter of fact, even for those that claim to be followers of Christ, it, it hurts. You know, who here jumps up and down when their sinful motives are exposed? Hey, goody, somebody's revealed my real heart. Anybody here? But Jesus is going after him on the fence of what are the accusations really that he's, he's, he's telling these guys and pointing their finger at them. Let me just, for your notes, if you're following along, give you five of them. The first one is this. They had a false expression of godliness. That verse 39, for the pretense make long prayers. Folks, that's false godliness. But can't we fall into that trap to try to impress people with our God talk by our knowledge of the scriptures or understandings of, of stuff? But it makes sense, in one sense, because who really wants to show our ungodliness? So we want to show our godliness. But in one sense, this is, I think, a motive for number two. Number two, I said it this way. They had a desire to impress people. They loved to walk around in long robes. So if I came with a robe and a collar next week, would I impress you? I hope not. I'm not going to do it. I don't even wear a tie. So. But don't we have to admit that our flesh, that deep down we want people to be impressed and to like us? Just a little bit more? See, do we realize how, realize how easy it is to slip into a mode of wanting the praise of people? You know, I don't think we really want to admit how much our culture and the kids' culture really sucks us into this direction of wanting to be praised. Let me put a statement on the screen for parents. It's far easier to get our children to want the praise of people than it is the praise of God. It's tempting to move down only the reward system of parenting and faith because it's easier to get that issue of praise. You know, how do we instill into our children that there's a place where it's between God and them that says, well done, my good and faithful servant? See, do we realize that too often, though, that people-pleasing and trying to impress, I don't know if you realize this, is really pointing to something lacking in us. We keep inviting people to fill the hole in our lives rather than Christ. See, its belief is this. 
I need people because God hasn't done it quite right. God, you're not meeting my needs. You're not doing it right now for me. Do you catch that? But there's another one. He goes after them again. Number three, they had a desire to be noticed and honored. And this goes beyond just people-pleasing, okay? They love to have the best seats in the synagogue and the best place of honor at the feasts. What's this all about? I think it's this. It's taking it to a new level. We want people to serve. They wanted people to serve them. Wait on them. And I believe ultimately that it's the love of power and authority and those things corrupt. And I don't think they understood that. Jesus said serve rather than to be served. Another one I think here though as well, number four, I think they believed in entitlement. Because I think in the back of their minds it's something like this, God, we've served you so faithfully in doing all these religious activities, so therefore we deserve those places, those things. But I have to pause and can't we struggle with entitlement as well? I think it's more subtle for us because I think here's how we do it. We turn into bartering with God. There's just this little bit of entitlement that, God, I'm doing my my part. I'm doing the religious things. So, God, as long as you show up and you give me healing or blessing or the right job or the right spouse. See, when he doesn't come through, though, what happens? People shrink away. Folks, that's entitlement. Bartering is entitlement. And the hard truth is that when we have a posture of entitlement and bartering with God, we're actually putting ourselves on the same plane as God. See, Jesus is the Son and the Lord of David. He has authority as God. We don't barter with Him. Instead, we embrace and we believe and trust in the grace and the kindness of God. And we believe that everything he gives is because of his kindness and that kindness can even lead us toward repentance. See, his grace draws us into himself. But there's even another one here. Look at verse 40. Who devour widows' houses. Here's the fifth one. He's accusing them of this. They were morally bankrupt. They're corrupt. He accuses them of manipulating to somehow they were gaining actually the possessions of the widows, homes and possessions, all for their benefit. And he asked the question, okay, Jesus is he's hitting hard. What do you think was going through their minds at this point when he was saying this stuff? I think you could picture him like this. I think they were foaming at the mouth. It's like having some rabies. And I think their faces were getting red and there was anger that was all over them. I wonder if the disciples would turn around as they were listening and watching their faces and, oh, now what are they going to do? See, the anger, you understand, was pushing them so that they would reject him and that he would need to go to the cross. But look what happens next. Look at verse 41. 
And he sat down opposite the treasury. And he watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, I don't know if you catch this of the dramatic contrast between the religious leaders and this poor widow. Matter of fact, let me show you a quote from Josephus, a first century historian. He, he writes about giving money. And, and look what he says here. Josephus tells us that some of the Pharisees, before they made their contribution to the great collection box, Jesus was watching here, actually summoned a trumpeter to go before them to get everybody's attention. Then the Pharisees would come up and proudly deposit a bag of gold into the treasury chest. She passed an offering plate today, huh? This is kind of like the guy who stood up in a service. They were fundraising for a building project, and he stands up and he says, I just want you to know I want to give a gift anonymously. <laughs> but, but, but see, they wanted... Others to see their generosity. But here is a poor widow who didn't have a seat in the synagogue, no clothes that would call attention to herself. And she takes out two small coins and she gives them out of her poverty. Here's what we need to realize, though. This text is functionally not about money. Now, that's how I was taught in Sunday school. And we taught about giving into an offering box, but the text really isn't about that. But understand here, the setting here is that Jesus would have been teaching a few minutes earlier in the court of the Gentiles within the temple area, and then he would have walked through some gates because this box for offering was out in the court of women. And he sits down here, and many believe that probably left behind those religious leaders... And here he's just talking to his disciples. But this chest would be out here, and there was an inscription on it that said, Free Will Offerings. And again, this is Passover week. There's thousands upon thousands of people in the city, and there would have been multitudes of people coming to give that offering that was due. And if one was wealthy... You would give gold coins. If you were not quite as wealthy, you might give some silver coins. But if you really didn't have a whole lot, you would come with these little copper coins, these Greek copper coins, and give them. So here is this profound lesson to his disciples. But catch this, this word poor again would indicate extreme poverty. It's just not a lack. It's closer to being destitute. That's this woman. But this Greek copper coin, what she gave was the equivalent of about one sixty-fourth of a day's salary. Functionally is this. It's about what it would take for her to eat for one day. This was food for the next day. 
But look again at this defining statement. As he, Jesus gives commentary, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, the religious leaders were giving so much more. And Jesus doesn't deny that there's value there. He doesn't say that that was worthless that they were in, in their giving. But he's saying this, her giving was worth far more than all the gifts of the others. See, he qualifies it as to what is most valuable. They give out of their abundance and she gives out of her poverty. She'd given all that she possessed. Folks, this is about her heart. A pure heart in terms of giving. And you got to catch this because of this gift. She would probably need to fast the next day because she wouldn't have had enough money to go out and get food. And actually, a couple other pieces here. As she dropped these into this offering box... The priests were the ones, the corrupt priests were the ones that were in charge of it. So she's given to a corrupt religious system, and she still gives. And one more piece, think of that. She drops those coins into that offering box, and potentially they could come and use those coins to give themselves better robes, nicer robes. Do you catch her heart? Now, i got to say this about this text for me. This was one of the most convicting passages for me in a long, long time. And maybe this is as convicting passage as there is in Scripture. You know, but people, again, keep thinking this is just about money. And I go, this is not about money. This is about the heart. It's a contrast of the heart's. And the attitude of the heart. Let me give you a couple applications here as we come to an end. First one is this. God wants our whole heart, not our leftovers. The religious leaders were giving more, and it wasn't out of their poverty. It was out of their leftovers. And remember, again, this beyond money, think of it. See, this is about the attitude of this woman who gave everything. You know, when you think of our culture and the value of commodities and giving to the kingdom, what is probably the most difficult commodity that we have today in terms of giving? Can I say it? Time. I think we have to admit that. But see, even there, God wants our heart just like this widow when it comes to giving. But think with me just a second, because people, other people were giving during that Passover week as well. And I think there was a variety of reasons as they dropped that money into the box. For some, it was like Jesus mentioned, it was they wanted to get noticed. That's the trumpet. But for others, I think it was, they dropped those coins in there and it was under compulsion. It was duty. It was guilt as to why they were doing it. And for some, they dropped it in there and they said, I'm going to get God's favor now. God's going to reward me. But think of the widow. As she drops those two coins in, 
It was because of pure devotion to God. But we have to acknowledge, to expand this a bit, that giving of our lives to God is about giving to the kingdom. And it costs something. The cost can be emotional energy. It can be time. It can be money. But is giving to the kingdom with only our leftovers. See, there was a cost to this widow, tomorrow's food. She didn't have a pantry with a month's supply of food in it. This um, studying this week, though, and I, I, to be honest with you, I had to ponder my attitude for giving and for serving and even for doing ministry in, in my role. And I have to admit that there have been plenty of times when I've wanted to quit ministry and go work at Caribou. And if a pastor doesn't ever tell you that, they're probably lying to you, okay? But understand this, that one can be a pastor and still give God leftovers. And I think I've been there. See, but when that happens, I believe this, that God invites me to a different place. And invites all of us, if that's where we're at, he invites us to a different attitude. And so I was pondering my attitudes over the years, and sometimes it's good and sometimes in the tank, and and comparing it to this woman with just pure devotion. And God ended up just, there was this verse that the Holy Spirit gave me, I think, and it was just, well, let me put it on the screen. 2 Corinthians 9 Uh, 6 and 7, and this is from the message. He pointed this out to remember, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish crop. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and to make up your mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. God loves it when the giver delights in giving. We know that if you're King James or another version, God loves a cheerful giver, but that's more than just money. It's our emotions, our time, it's our attitude. And folks, that widow was sowing more bountifully than all of the others were doing. She was a cheerful giver. See, God loves when one delights in giving our money, our time, our possessions, our emotional energy. And when my attitude, and maybe yours, goes into the tank and we're the opposite of a cheerful giver, I I, I think the answer is not just to suck it up, Ken, or try a little harder. That will not lead to cheerful giving. Let me give you what I believed the widow believed. For your notes, this is where she was at. God invites us to trust that he is good and and abundantly sufficient. See, you know what the real issue for me, my my deepest level of wanting to quit working for the kingdom, and maybe it's different for you, but for me, I put expectations on myself, believing that I can control things, I can frankly do this. I can become the Lord of my own life. And that attitude is not about trusting God and his sufficiency. It's the opposite. 
See, God's goodness and sufficiency was rooted deeply into the heart of this widow. That's why she gave, and it was such a profound act of worship. She gave because she believed and trusted God that that he would meet her needs, bottom line. She trusted God in everything in her giving. And you go, how do you get there? How do you get to that place where you go, you open up your palms and say, God, I trust you. Well, let me point you to an incredible passage. And I think this widow would have known this text. I really do. Lamentations chapter 3. Look at a couple verses from here, verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It keeps coming. He's faithful. We can trust in his love. And his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. When we hit the floor in the morning, he can give us and sustain us no matter what we're going through. Great is your faithfulness. He is trustworthy. The Lord is my portion. See, it's not trying harder. It's recognizing God's sufficiency and Him giving us what we need. He is a sufficient and the result in the end of that verse 24, therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, whose hands are up, who trust Him, and to the soul who seeks Him. I'm going to invite the elders to come on up for communion. Do you recognize this table represents Christ and him giving everything to the point of death for us? And I don't know if you realize how he came to that place. I didn't say this in the first sermon but in 1 Peter chapter 2, where it talks about suffering and going through hard times, it makes this incredible statement that Jesus on the cross had to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He, Jesus had to put his arms up and say, God, you're in control. Father, you're the one that can help me go to the cross. And he gave his life for us. And that's what we celebrate today. The Father was sufficient even for Jesus at that moment as he was hanging on the cross. And we want to celebrate that today. Guys, if you would hand out the bread. And we practice open communion here, meaning that if you know Christ is your Savior, please join us. But we do ask you that you just hold the bread. And we want to partake of that together. But just ponder the sufficiency of God and the Father and the Son in our lives even right now as you wait.